uh, existence is from you, uh, breath and, and every day as a gift is from you. We acknowledge that. We humble ourselves before you and acknowledge your creator, your Lord, your sovereign. All things ultimately serve your purposes. Lord, that includes our time here today. Would you help us unburden our souls with anything that keeps us from drawing near to you now? Confess those sins. Give to you perhaps the cares that need to be taken care of later today or tomorrow. Uh, but help us to be open to hearing your spirit this morning. Help us to be open to your worthiness and declaring your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, I think June 27th, June 23rd was my mother's birth date. And when I was a teenager on one of those birthdays, uh, about half the family was still there. I was a teenage teenager, so some of my older siblings were out of the house or out of the house that day. It was about half of us gathered around the dining room table as my dad gave mom her birthday presents. And she opened the first, it was kind of a bulky package, and she pulled out a hose. And I don't mean things that women wear on their legs. It was a garden hose. And she was not a gardener. And there was a spray, you know, the, the spray you put on the end of the hose was next. There was a hoe also. And uh, Dad's smirking the whole time. And uh, the deal apparently was Mom had complained about the status of parts of the yard. And so in response to that, my father had given my mother the implements that he intended, or probably more properly in, intended, for us to use to satisfy my mom's desires. Now, I will tell you, it was sort of tongue-in-cheek, it was sort of a ha-ha, but if you saw my mom's face, it did, did not go over very well, for sure. <laughs> Obviously, uh, when we give gifts to someone else, sort of the point is to make sure that it's a gift that they would appreciate. You know, sometimes we give other people things we want, and we think that'll bless them, but that's not necessarily the case. And what's true of gifts that we would give to each other is actually more and supremely true of worship you and I would offer to God. And I know it's not just in the past, we'll be talking about worship from Deuteronomy here in just a minute, but I'm sure it's the case today too that it is not infrequently that people will give to God what they think God should get, and it may have absolutely nothing to do with what God wants. They may be gifts from our perspective, but they may not be the gifts that God counts as something he desires or wants from us, both in the days Israel was a nation, past tense, and again from us today. So this is the 16th message in the Mercy Waiting Lessons in Deuteronomy series, we're talking about worship, and I'll give a couple qualifications to this along the way. Um, when we say worship, we're probably thinking of the English or Anglo-Saxon word worship, which means to declare to God, or we, we attribute to God verbally. We say those things that describe God's worthiness. And that's good, and that's what we usually do when we think of we praise God verbally in prayer or we sing those things just as we did in the opening here, those things that are true of God. We say that's worship. That's true. But when you read scriptures, the classic image of worship is not necessarily what we say, it's what we do. And the classic image of worship in the Old Testament especially is to bow before 
your superior. It's the physical posture in which I come before someone else and I bow down before them. And you remember in the days of kings who had the power of life and death, I basically was saying to that superior, you're Lord over me. And I've put myself in this position of humility and also I'm exposed. If you wanted to harm me, you could, but I'm, un I'm at your disposal and everything I have is yours. And I'm acknowledging that. That's the Old Testament picture primarily of worship. It's not just what we say, it's what we do. It's an attitude that God gets me and everything I have and everything I am. So those are sort of some of the big rocks of worship. We're going to be in one chapter this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 12. So on one level, it's, it's a lot of text to cover. We won't cover every sentence, every verse, but we will cover the big rocks of Deuteronomy 12. And then so that it's applicable for us specifically, we'll go to the New Testament where there's a similar theme out of Deuteronomy 12. We'll pick that up in the New Testament to say, what does that look like for us in the church today? So, so much of what we'll read about Israel does not apply to us today. The ways God told them he wanted to be worshipped primarily are old covenant stuff, and it's stuff we don't do anymore. And that's okay. But we do want to know when we're done, Lord, what is worship, the worship you want from us today? What does that look like? You told Israel that's what we'll be looking at. But as we live under the new covenant, what does that look like for us? What is the acceptable worship, the kind of gifts you want? What does that look like from us today? So guys, this is a lot of information. If your eyes glaze, I won't hold that against you. But I do hope, usually you'll find that there's one or two things in about any given message that God's speaking to us. You don't have to get all points, but usually there's one or two takeaways that you'll have. So Deuteronomy 12, I'm going to read from the ESV. We'll start with verses 1 through 4. As God starts, as through Moses, he's telling Israel what he wants from them for worship. He doesn't start with what he wants. He starts with what he does not want. What he does not want, verses 1 through 4. These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods, destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way." So when God starts talking about worship, he says, don't do this. Your worship of me is not to look like the pagans' worship of their gods. And remember, Israel's come out of Egypt, which is a place filled with idols and idolatry. They're coming into the land of Canaan, a place filled with idols and idolatry. And God says, none of that is for you. When you offer me worship, it's not to look like that. When you went into the Canaanite cultures of that day, the two primary gods they worshipped were Baal, we say Baal, he's the Canaanite storm and fertility god. He's known as Molech, when you read the account in Numbers, where they're sacrificing uh, children, and later in the prophets, children, to a god on a statue, that's Molech, but it's Baal by another name. His consort, his female counterpart, was Ashtoreth. She's called Ishtar and Astarte in other countries. 
She was the goddess of sexuality and fertility. So when God says uh, back in our text, uh, burn their Asherim, plural, for these statues that were poles in shape that were to this female deity. So their, their worship, and this is true pretty much throughout ancient history, uh, if you went to a site to worship one of these gods, there would usually be some kind of animal sacrifice. There was also cultic prostitution. If you said, if I was a guy back in that day and I'm not very religious, you'd probably still go and worship because it, it was sex. Almost always with the worship of pagan gods, sex was involved in there one way or another. That was going on in spades in the worship of both Baal and Ashtoreth. And sacrifices as well, which we'll bring up again in a minute. So when God says, Israel, you're going into the land, regarding the worship sites of the pagans, mountains, hills, and groves, he says, that's not where you're going to go. That's not where you're going to worship. Don't worship where they worship. Don't go to those sites and worship like they worship. In fact, there's a phrase used, Every high hill and under every green tree. That phrase is used 13 times in the Old Testament regarding the places the pagans worship. And nine of those 13 times, God is indicting Israel for worshiping where the nations worshiped. So they didn't take this to heart. They said, we're going to worship wherever we want. But that was the, the prohibition on the front end was don't go and worship where the pagans worship. If you go down uh, to verses 29 through 31 back in Deuteronomy 12, it's another warning right along the same line. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they've been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. They even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to the gods. And again, that's that image of a heated idol that they would then put the child on would burn to death as sacrifice to their god. So, before God tells them any of the things positively that he wants them to do, he warns them, you're not to worship me like the pagans who don't know me worship their gods. That's not for you. The place is not for you. The kind of the ways they sacrifice is not for you. Now, if you fast forward to the church age, Francis Schaeffer was right when he said, if you look at the world, the the culture around us, the church almost inevitably follows the culture. The church takes its cues from the culture. Historically, that's been the norm. In fact, you know, if you look at the group I grew up in, the Roman Catholic system, and you say, well, where do you get all that stuff? Where do you get the smells and the bells? Where do you get the worship of saints and icons and Mary, etc.? Well, you say, well, all of that stuff was brought in piece by piece, as the gospel went into pagan cultures, elements of pagan worship would be brought in. And so I would say Roman Catholicism and to a lesser extent oftentimes Anglicanism, Episcopalianism, it still embodies these elements, Judaism, paganism, and Christianity. And they've, got, they've been blended in that because over time, those elements of pagan worship were brought into the church. 
I wonder if that's possible for us today. Do you think any of that might still go on today? Is the church being influenced by the culture? Are any of the ways that we think of God and worship Him, offer Him gifts of praise or worship, is any of that going on for us? Is it from the culture around us? And I think quite a bit it, it is. As we've talked about some of the social challenges that cultures face, churches are following the culture uh, big time. And you'll see that that's been true, especially in uh, probably from the 1960s forward. As there's been social revolution, the church has tended to follow the culture in the social revolution that's been occurring in the last 50 or 60 years. And that's something we've got to be careful about. Who's informing us? So are we taking our cues from God and his word, or are we subtly being influenced by elements of truth or life or a call to praise or worship that's from the culture and the world but isn't from God? I think the church needs to be very, very careful about this. There's a text in Genesis 35 that's been a favorite of mine for decades. Back to Bethel is easy to remember. And the patriarch Jacob had been in Haran with Uncle Laban and he got his wives and his wife's concubines helpers and he's got all his kids and he's got his flocks and his herds and he comes back into the land of promise. And when he's there, God speaks to Jacob and he says, Jacob, I want you to go back to Bethel. And if you remember, Bethel was that place where God first appeared to Jacob. It's called Luz. The Canaanites called it Luz, but it was Bethel, God's house. And that's where God met Jacob, gave him the Abrahamic promise, gave him the covenant, made him promises, and he calls Jacob back. And you know what happens when he calls Jacob back? Read the text. Jacob says to his household, we got to get rid of our idols. In fact, they bury their idols under a tree. Now, you know Rachel, his wife, had stolen her father's idols and taken them with him. That's part of an earlier story. But it wasn't just Rachel because it's plural. And it wasn't just her. It's others in his extended family have idols with them. And Jacob knows we're going back to Bethel to meet God. And suddenly my conscience is pricked and I realize I've accrued, my family group has accrued all these idols along the way. And it's the call to go back that's the reminder to Jacob we have taken on elements of the culture that God doesn't want us to have. And so sometimes in our life, God will prick us and you realize this is not what God wants. This thing I'm doing, caring, thinking about, either individually or collectively for the church. So we want to be careful as we're using the lens of Scripture to say, Lord, is this what you're after? Or am I just baptizing what the world is saying and bringing that into your church? Uh, idols today, most of us don't have a problem worshiping statues, you know, the pagan Worship almost always centered around statue, though elements of the professing Christian church today do worship statues and don't think that's a problem. I think that is a problem. But guys, idolatry, our hearts, our old hearts, they're darkened, and God knows we tend to idolatry. It's a given. You, you can't escape it. You can say you're better than that, but you're not because you're human. And apart from God, we tend to make stuff God substitutes so alcoholism and drug abuse are forms of idolatry. The person is trying to get from alcohol and drugs what only God can ultimately give. They're a God's substitute. Pornography is an idol. In fact, it's by definition out of Colossians. By definition, it's an idol. 
money, power, prestige, or the pursuit of those things where I am God, I become my own idol, I want to build myself up, I want you to help me do that, I want to receive acclaim and, and you will worship me and I'll feel good about myself, myself as an idol, children's sports as an idol, almost anything, we can make an idol of God substitute. And you really, you ask yourself, what am I giving my affections to? Where are my affections? What do I adjust my life to accommodate? If it's not the Lord and His things, that is a good way to figure out what my idols might be, to look for those. How are we doing at tearing down our own high places and our own groves, our own areas of idolatry? It's a good question to ask before we get into the positives that God spoke to Israel and the positives for us too. If you go back to chapter 12, verse 5, in Deuteronomy, he told the Jews where he wanted them to worship and when he wanted them to worship. Now, they had much more ritual than we have today. Churches, Every church has some ritual, which just means an order or a, a way of doing things. They were more formal in that. But he told them where and when. So in contrast to pagans worshiping wherever they chose, he required them to worship in a particular place. So look at Deuteronomy 12, verse 5. He says, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. There you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes. If you go to verse 11, to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell. There you shall bring all that I command you. Verse 13, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place, that's what the pagans did, that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings. There you shall do all that I am commanding you. Now going on in Deuteronomy, verses 18 and 26 in chapter 12, chapter 16, verses 5 and 6 and more, all beat, give a drumbeat to this same theme, you worship where I tell you it's going to be a central place where collectively, corporately, you worship in the place I'm telling you. So they are not only to reject the pagan sites, they're specifically called to the place God says to worship. Now, you know when David brings the ark into Jerusalem, that's about 1000 B.C. So this is 1400 B.C. So for about 400 years, it's not Jerusalem, it's Shechem and Shiloh, where the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle are located. And you'll see those places come up in stories as people went to worship. But from David forward, and of course Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem, Jerusalem becomes that central site of worship. This was protective because, you know, for the pagans and uh, every man doing what's right in his own eyes, that was one of the key phrases out of the book of Judges. So no sooner do the Jews go into the land, they conquer it, they possess it, and then it starts saying every man does what's right in his own eyes. Well, they got away from this commandment because if you worshipped in the place God wanted you to worship, you would worship where the priests were centered, around the tabernacle and the ark, they knew the sacrifices to offer. They knew when you were to offer these sacrifices, what kind, etc. So if you went to the place, and only the place collectively to worship that God had said, it meant that you would almost by default be worshiping along the lines that God said, this is the way I mean to be worshipped. 
So it was, it was very much a, a key control of keeping people from doing things as they saw fit instead of what would please God. So worship only in the place that I give you. Now if we fast forward again to today, what does that look like for us? We'd say a couple things. Um, you know, the, the world's a big place and people have all kinds of uh, views of life and we tend to be a very, in some ways, in some ways only, very accommodating culture. Um, but worship today isn't worship that God finds acceptable if it doesn't come through Christ. So forget place for, the, for a moment. Just that acceptable worship to God today must come through Jesus Christ. So that's not a place, but that's key. If it doesn't come through Christ God doesn't accept it as worship. That sounds harsh, especially to our ears today. There's a verse in Proverbs, and I'm not calling anyone names, but says, the worship of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Well, that's describing humanity apart from God, and covenant faithfulness and relationship with God through faith. So first we would say, appropriate, acceptable worship of God must come through Jesus the Son. That's not news to us. That's John 14, 6. There's only one place to come to enter the Father's presence and offer acceptable worship, and that's through Christ. But as far as on the earth, where, where do we gather today? We're not going to Jerusalem. We're not going to a tabernacle. If you look at 1 Corinthians 3, we would say the equivalent of the place, Jews are called to worship in a particular place, we would say the equivalent of that for corporate worship today would be any, every local assembly of believers that's gathering to worship in Jesus' name. Or Paul says in 2 Timothy, calling on the Lord out of a pure heart. So today, Kent, Kent will say repeatedly, the building is not the church, but the people are. So if you were in oppressed countries like Russia under communism or parts of China, parts of Africa today, the place you went to worship was the woods in the evening when you could go in secret and not be found out. So it's not the building today. There are lovely cathedrals all over the world. You know, you can go to uh, Europe today. The cathedrals are museums because they're not needed because people don't worship God there. There's a building, but there's not a church because there's not an assembly of believers that meets there in Jesus' name. So today, when we think of corporate worship, we're meant to think of the local church body. Now, guys, this is... Uh, there was a particular piece done on YouTube. It's several years ago now. The guy explained why he loved Jesus but didn't love the church. And I said, well, you got a problem with that because Jesus loves the church. Ephesians 5. So... None of us are better than others in the sense that I don't need you and you don't need me. You know, sort of I look down my nose and I say there's no church worthy of me. So I don't need to go to church and worship because God and me, we're okay. That's absolutely unbiblical. In fact, I think it's a stench in God's nose. That attitude that says there isn't a local church good enough for me to be a part of it. But there are lots of professing Christians saying that today and living that out. Well, God says acceptable worship is to do so with other believers calling on Christ out of a pure heart with those who are doing the same thing. So we would say today the equivalent is the local church. 
Now, there are some churches, no doubt, you could go to. They don't profess Christ clearly, the gospel clearly, the truth of God's words clearly. That's not what I'm talking about. But the place where Jesus is held up, the gospel is the means of salvation, the, the orthodox truth of Scripture where that's upheld, those are the places that we say that's God's temple today. I'm not making this up because this is what God has said in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 3, verse 11 says this, Paul speaking to the church. He says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, the foundation for God's house, which is Jesus Christ. So again, worship has to be focused in or through Christ or it's not acceptable worship. You get down to verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that you, you collectively, you, are God's temple. Today on the earth, the temple of God is the collective group of believers. And he finishes that by saying, and that God's spirit dwells in you. We don't go searching for a, a big geographic structure someplace on the earth. We gather with each other and God says, my spirit is in you collectively. You're the temple of God on earth. You see the same thing in 1 Timothy 3 verses 14 through 15, where Paul tells Timothy when he's at Ephesus that the church is the house of God. We typically think of uh, temples, but guys, temples in the Old Testament were understood to be God's house. We say temple and it sort of removes it, but it's meant to be God's house. Well, Paul says in that language and culture, the church is God's house. It's the pillar and support of the truth. So, it's possible, and hopefully we all do, we can worship God individually. I'm not saying we don't do that, can't do that, shouldn't do that. But if we don't find that as a norm, we're gathering with other believers to worship God collectively in the local expression of the body of Christ, we are failing to give God acceptable worship. We're called to that. God also told him when, this is one example, if you're still in Deuteronomy, turn to chapter 16, verse 16. This is only an example. Three times a year, Moses wrote, all your males, all the men, shall appear before the Lord, your God, at the place he will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's Passover in the spring, at the Feast of Weeks, 50 days later, Pentecost, and at the Feast of Booths in the fall. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. You can see other texts in which God will say there's other holy days you're to come together. There's special worship and sacrifices to be offered on new moons, on weekly Sabbaths, etc. But you can see here that God was not only saying where to worship, he was saying you're to worship on these days, at these occasions, in this manner each time. So acceptable worship of Yahweh meant worshiping where he said and when he said. And we would point out for ourselves, modern day, while the New Testament is still being written, the early church was already meeting on Sunday, the first day of the week, the week, uh, the, excuse me, the day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. So it had shifted from the Jewish observance of Sabbath, seventh day, it had gone to the first day of the week, apparently because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. It's been the same ever since. Now, Romans 14 talks about the fact that Christians are free to treat every day the same. So if we said, for some reason, first day of the week is problematic, we're going to meet on Tuesday, I'd say, great, you can meet on Tuesday. You can worship God collectively on Tuesday or Thursday or whatever. 
We're free to give God to treat every day as if it's the Lord's day under the new covenant. But specifically, Christians since the early church have been meeting on Sunday, the first day of the week. That's why we still do so today. So God said where and when. Uh, going back to verse 5 again there in Deuteronomy 12, God also told them what to worship with, that is, substance or substantially. You know, from Genesis 4 and the story of Abel forward, to worship God always meant to bring God something of your substance. That, that you weren't just saying something about God, but that you were giving God back something. And again, just like that posture of bowing before someone indicating you're subject to them, all that you are and have is theirs, when you're giving back this portion to God, you are indicating everything I have is yours, Lord, and there's a portion of that that I return to you as a sacrifice, an element of worship. I'm giving it back to you. I'm acknowledging everything I have is from you. So if you look at Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, there, go to the place God's appointed, there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. We're not getting into all the specifics of this from the rest of the law, but of course this is their stuff. This is their agricultural produce. These are their flocks. Go down to verse 11. You shall bring all that I command you. Now God is saying you will worship me this way. You're worshiping me with your stuff, the stuff that I give you. You shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution that you present, and all your finest, that's key, all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. If we go to the book of Leviticus, we would see on this day you're to, you're to worship me with these sacrifices. And, and on this other day you're to worship me with these sacrifices. And with this sin, when you confess your sin, you offer this kind of a sacrifice. And if you just say, Lord, I'm having a great time with you, and I've given you a free will offering. You offer this kind of a sacrifice. I made an oath, Lord, if you will. Think of Hannah in 1 Samuel. Lord, if you will give me this baby boy, then this is what I will do for you. Then fulfilling the vow was going to God and saying thank you through some kind of offering that would be made on the altar. So God required, this wasn't a, it wasn't a request. God required as an element of his worship that they worship with their substance and because they're primarily an agricultural community, think of small farms in Kansas and the Midwest a hundred years ago, that's kind of what they were. They had produce and they had animals. Primarily, that's what they were bringing to God as sacrifices to be offered on the altar. And guys, when we think, we'll talk briefly here what, what giving in the New Testament looks like under the New Covenant. When we say Israel was commanded to tithe, it's not that that's not true, but that's not all, uh, it's not true enough. So if you go through the law and you look at what God required, the firstborn stuff to be given on certain occasions, it's guesstimated that's more like 20%, might be as high as 30% of what the Jews, of their, their increase would have been given back to God as an element of worship, not just the, the tenth that was given as part of the annual uh, increase so acceptable worship meant also not only the first the first of an animal would be sacrificed to god if i have a cow and this is this is the cow's first calf that calf was meant to be sacrificed to yahweh 
and the first of the offerings. You remember, matter of fact, on Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, was the Feast of First Fruits when the high priest would take a scythe and would cut out a bunch from the field. The, the harvest is going to begin and he would present that before the Lord. Well, that's the thought. It's the first and the best. God gets the first and the best. Deuteronomy 17.1 says it this way, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep, which is a blemish, any defect, whatever. That's an abomination to the Lord. God says, you must give me your best, not your cast-offs. And this comes up in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, when God reproves them. And basically, he says, you're treating me like a tin pot potentate. You're offering uh, animals on my altar that are defective, such that you wouldn't offer to someone else, your own governors, you wouldn't offer, but that's what you're giving me. And he says, I am a great king and what you're doing is an insult. What you're bringing to me as a sacrifice is a gift I don't accept. This isn't what I've talked about. This doesn't please me. First and the best. If you go to the New Covenant, and this is, this is really broad brush this morning because there's too many specifics to cover. But there's a text, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in the New Testament. If you want one text that gives sort of the, the big rocks of giving, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 do. And this is not a message on giving specifically. This is one aspect of their worship. But related to what does that look like for us? Even if I'm a farmer growing grain, I'm not bringing corn to church on Sunday morning. You, you know, we're, we're in an economy where everything goes to to a currency. So we translate everything into a currency and we give dollars. Maybe we'll give digital dollars in the future. That's next on the Fed's list, I believe. What does that look like? So the early church, what you see, most of the giving text that you'll see, not in the Gospels, but in Acts and forward, has to do with taking up collections for the benefit of Jewish Christians who were suffering and needed financial help. In that context, this, this is a sacrifice. It is an element of worship. That's what Paul calls it. And this is what he said. These are the five big rocks he gives in those two chapters. He said, first, give from what we have. That's chapter 8, verse 12. Give, in fact, Deuteronomy 16, 17, give as you are able. That's the same thought there in 2 Corinthians 8. So if you have a million dollars and you give 10% and I have $1,000 and I give 10%, that's the thought. I don't look at you and say, I wish I could give more money. I'm giving as I am able to give. I'm giving as God has prospered me. You give as God has prospered you. That's the thing. It's always a proportion. In chapter 9, he says, give generously. Chapter 9, verse, uh, that's 6. In chapter 9, verse 7, give thoughtfully. And he says, intentionally, as opposed to reluctantly or under compulsion, as a church, we've never taken an offering, I believe. I don't think we've ever taken an offering. And there's a great sense in which, for churches who take offerings, oftentimes, in the best case, uh, I or my family come in and we say, as an act of worship, when the tray comes around or, or however that's done, we're giving a check or we're putting money, in, and that's an act of worship, intentionally so. But when Lion and Lamb started, we were sensitive to, perhaps over, I don't know, but we wanted to be careful that someone who walked in Lion and Lamb didn't feel like the screws were being put on them for finances. 
And so if, I, if you come into a church on Sunday morning and the plate's getting passed, we didn't want someone to think to give because, well, what if someone doesn't see me give? See, that's exactly, don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. We have people that speak at our church sometimes and they'll say, we'd like to take a collection. We say, we don't take collections. Because we don't want you coming here on a Sunday morning and suddenly you realize someone's up front asking for money and you think, oh well, gosh, I might as well give. I should give. Because the, the, the flip side of that is God means for us to give thoughtfully, prayerfully. So that's why we do things the way we do here. There's just, no, no one else knows what you're doing on your giving. Jeff may tabulate it, but you put, put an envelope in a box on the hall wall and that's it. Because we want it to be thoughtful. We don't want it to be under compulsion. Verse 7. Uh, chapter 9, verse 7 is cheerfully. It says God loves a cheerful giver. You know, if you're writing your check or you're putting something away and you're cringing as you're doing so because you really don't want to do it, don't do it. I would tell you, don't do it. I would pray because that, that reflects an attitude that's not where God wants us to be. So if we can't give generously and cheerfully, something's wrong internally. Let's pray about that. Let's get that right. And then let's give and offer the things to God that he considers acceptable. And the last there, the fifth, Three verses on this, verses 8 through 11. God says when you give, do so trusting him for your future needs. God's able, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency, you'll be able to have what you need and you'll have enough to be generous with others. So he says when we're worshiping through our substance, trust God for our future needs. That liberates us to give generously and cheerfully now. So worshiping God through generous giving, resources, time, energy is a great way also to keep our hearts from making stuff our God substitute. If you look at Deuteronomy 12, verse 7, sorry, how are we doing? Are the eyelids, are we down for the count? Are we doing okay? Uh, <laughs> coffee on the way in, in the lobby, yep. Uh, the next one you see in verse 7 I hope we do this. I don't know that we talk about this, but I hope we do this. Verse 7, when you go to worship, there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Verse 12, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons, your daughters, your male servants, female servants, and the Levite that's in your town. You remember when um, the seasonal holidays that the Jews would go and they would give God their stuff part of that was unless it was something like a burnt offering part of what they came to give God they would consume themselves so if you did a fellowship offering you would give to God this animal you'd sacrifice the priest would cut it up the priest would get so much of it but your family and you would get part of it too and so you were in God's presence and you were rejoicing with your family members people from your town in God's presence, and it sounds funny, but joy or rejoicing was commanded by God as this key element of worship. That when we come together, there was that sense of, Lord, we're in your presence, we're happy to be here, we're with our family members, we're bringing the stuff you've blessed us with, and our hearts are overflowing because you're so good and you've blessed us, and here we are celebrating together. So God commanded that a normal aspect of their worship was joy when they got together. 
That's a key thought, I think, for us today. I think we do that. I hope that we do that. Joy is not only a fruit of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ within us, but it's meant to be a key part or experience as we worship together. And again, I think when I come in here on Sunday mornings, I would say it tends to be a joyful gathering. Now, let me be quick to add. When the church gathers, and by the way, when we pray before services on Sunday morning, you know, sometimes when we come to church, we need to be convicted of sin. We need to repent. We need some solemn word for God that, that corrects our outlook, that speaks to us where we need to be spoken to. And that's absolutely true. And when that goes on, we don't say that's a bad thing. We say that's a good thing. You know, the Jews had solemn assemblies. They would come together, and it wasn't a time for rejoicing. It was a time for reflection and conviction and repentance and confession. And that's good for us, too. We need that. But on a regular, consistent basis, joy or rejoicing should be a normal part, a normal component of the worship and the time that we're offering to God. If you look down at verse 32, this is the end of the passage. And I love this. So, when God, this is just one chapter on worship. And it's not all that Deuteronomy says about worship, but it's one full chapter on what God said about worship. And when he closes this section out, he says this, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. God says, everything that I told you, you do that. You don't try and do more than I told you. You don't do less. You just do what I told you. It's like, you know, dad's leaving and tells junior, do what I told you. You know, here's the list. Check it off. Make sure you do it. Do it my way, God says. Not your way, my way. Be careful to do all that I said. Don't do more than I said. Don't worry about that. Don't do less than I said. Don't get creative. How seriously did God take this? And I find this interesting. It's, this is true in Old Testament, and it's true in the New Testament. So the Old Testament. So the covenant is given, and Israel's in covenant with the Lord, and he says, worship me this way. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3, very briefly tells a story. And the story's about two of Aaron's sons. Aaron's the high priest. His sons are priests. They're the guys that stand before Yahweh in the ark, the ark of the covenant, the tabernacle where God is. These are the guys. This is what the text says. Nadab and Abihu, they each took his censer, so a metal tray. They put fire in it, coals from the altar. They put incense on it. And this is what it says, and it's a bit ambiguous, but that's the way it is. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. That's ESV. Other translations say strange fire. Again, it's not entirely clear what they did, but what they did was not what God said to do. And they knew it. This is what happened. Fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Now, guys, it's not just the story there in Leviticus. There are three more times in which specifically it, it reminds the Jews Nahab and Abihu were slain by God in fire for worshiping in a way that he did not prescribe. That's how things started off. God got their attention. 
Now, when you go to the New Covenant and the New Testament, now we have a, we have a liberty in our relationship with God, absolutely, that the Jews did not. We're sons. They were friends. We're sons and daughters. And the relationship's different. So I don't want to be confusing on that. But if you go to Acts 5, do you think it's a coincidence that you have a very similar story? The church has just been born. The church has just begun. And, and people are giving of their substance to the apostles to feed everybody that's hanging out in Jerusalem because the spirits come and they're staying there. They don't want to leave. And, and what happens? And a husband and a wife, the story is clear, they conspire. They're going to sell their land like other people have done. They're going to bring the proceeds, give it to the apostles. So far, everything's fine. No problem. But they're lying. And Peter says, you're lying not to me, but to the Holy Spirit. They're offering what appears to be an act of worship. Here's all the money, but they would kept some back. But that's not what they said. And Peter says, he's clear on this. He said, guys, the land was yours. You could, you could do whatever you wanted with it. You could keep it. You could sell it. You could give part of the proceeds. You could give all the proceeds. It was yours. But you sold it and you told us one thing and you did another because you're trying to bolster your own image in the church. And God struck them both dead. And that was the beginning of the church. Just like Nadab and Abihu. In fact, the text says, and fear... Fear went out through the church. Why? Because this God we're worshiping, He's an awesome God. And even though we're sons and daughters of the Most High, we've got to treat God with a reverence that still today we say the fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. That we want to bring that kind of reverential attitude and thought that God's the one to be pleased. We're not here to build ourselves up in the sight of others. God said, I won't have it. Summing up, so this is Deuteronomy. Worship for Israel is meant to be according to God's revealed will, not like the pagan nations, the place he chose, the times he chose, the gifts and sacrifices he required, with joy, God's way. Now, if you read the Old Testament, on a scale of 1 to 10, how well did Israel do with these commands to worship God, his way, his place, his times? It, not, not very well. So it's easy for us to look back, right? Yeah. How are we doing? What's this look like for us? As far as a community living under the new covenant called to worship God. I'm going to go through a hit list. So again, if your eyes glaze, that's fine. But I do want to, these are applicational to us in the time and the place we live. Jesus is the high priest. And uh, Hebrews is a challenging epistle in the New Testament. 13 chapters. It is the most referenced part of the New Testament from the Old. It quotes the Old Testament again and again. And again, it is a great epistle. If you have a Roman Catholic background, Episcopal background, Jewish background, because it looks at the Old Testament and it shows you that Jesus is the substance of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was shadows. And so it says, Jesus is the thing. Don't give up on Jesus. Persevere in the faith. He's the thing. So it's an outstanding epistle to show us Christ as the fulfillment of, of the priesthood, the offerings, the covenant, you name it. It's all there in Hebrews. And in Hebrews, Jesus is the high priest who ushers us into the holy presence of God. He's the eternal high priest. He is himself the sacrifice that makes the way to God possible. 
it's still true. You can't come to the Father except through the Son. You can't worship God the Father except through the Son. There's no true worship of God except through Christ. Again, think of John 14, 6. Uh, our worship must be offered in spirit and truth. That's John chapter 4. Spirit and truth, it's got to be according to the truth of God's word. What he said is true. Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, our heart, our spirit, our mind, in tune. This is not sort of uh, obeisance as a mere outward form. Uh, but this is us bringing ourselves, body, soul, and spirit, according to God's word. We should be regularly worshiping in God's temple, the church. Again, we can worship individually, but we should be worshiping collectively as the church. Worship is something that every believer is called to since we are all called priests under the new covenant. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. We're called to offer a variety of things. The fruit of our lips is worship, Hebrews 13, 5. When we sing praise or when we pray and pray about God's attributes, that's worship. That's a sacrifice of praise. Uh, we're commanded to give God our material wealth and resources as God has prospered us. You'll see that in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians, as we've mentioned. I love, too, that our financial help to others in the faith is seen as a, as a sacrifice that's acceptable to God the Father. You see that in both Philippians and Hebrews. And ultimately, we are to see ourselves as worshipers 24-7. This is different, a bit different than the Old Testament. Romans 12, verse 1, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a holy and living sacrifice that's acceptable to God. If God has our bodies, guys, He has everything. That's the thought. So it's as if I present my body like an animal on the altar. God gets the whole thing. I'm to see myself, my thoughts, my activities, my hopes, my desires, my dreams, anything that I am or have ultimately as God's. My life is meant to be an aspect of worship. So how are we doing at giving God the kinds of gifts and worship that please Him, that He finds acceptable? That's the question. With that, I've gone a little long. Stand, yawn, stretch. Wake up, and uh, the worship team's going to come up. I do want to read from Hebrews 10. This is a little longer. The font's a little smaller, but I think it's an appropriate conclusion to the text we've been looking at. Let's read that from Hebrews 10 together. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith.